Persons. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to welcome you to our policy forum today on a very, very interesting topic and a, a great new publication from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, and the topic, our, our topic today is which states are the most free? Uh, and our uh, publication is on an index of freedom in the states. Um, today, what we're going to do, as in all Cato forums, we're going to have about uh, a section until perhaps around five or so about uh, a presentation from our authors talking about the publication, going into the details on, on it. Uh, then we'll have a commentary from uh, uh, Michael Barone on the work they've done. And after that, uh, for the last part, last third or so of our event today, we'll have uh, question and answers from you so we can get into this, this topic a little, uh, little more depth. Now, a couple of other sort of administrative housekeeping uh, announcements. I would ask that you turn off your cell phones if you have, have one on. And also, uh, I asked to mention that uh, thank you for bearing with us. The Cato Institute is going through, as you may notice, construction. I don't think we're going to have any noise that's going to affect our presentation today. But we're well on the way to uh, a major uh, reworking of our building here that will give us a greater capacity for doing these kinds of things in a variety of different ways. Uh, it's one indication of our forum today, I think, that uh, I had originally had planned another forum on this date, June the 8th, and then I went to, to see if anyone else had planned one, and I found out that my colleague, the executive vice uh, president here, David Bowes, had planned this program on federalism and which states are most free. And I inquired whether David might, you know, give way and let me have my program that I was planning on this. And he said, well, perhaps, but uh, in fact, I've been trying to get this together, the thing you're seeing today, I've been trying to get it together for well over a year. So I'm not very eager. So I think it gives you some indication of what David thought about how important this topic was. And I want to thank him for putting this together, uh, even though he's had to be out of town today. Uh, but he thought it was so important that for some time, well over a year, he tried to get this together, and here we have it today for you. I wanted to give start with a very brief uh, big picture idea. You know, as you know, the Cato Institute is a institute whose uh, purpose is to try to figure out ways to enhance human liberty and ways to uh, constrain and limit government to, above all, its constitutional role. How does federalism and what is the information we're going to hear about today, how does that play in that? It seems to me that federalism is at the core of one of the purposes of the Cato Institute, controlling and limiting government. I know of no better quote about the purpose of uh, the Cato Institute or of limiting government than James Madison's famous quote, uh, in Federalist Number 51, Madison said, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in that you fir must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. Federalism, I thought, I think in his mind, in the mind of the American founders, was an important one, an uh, important way of being an auxiliary precaution for freedom. 
And one thing it, federalism does offer is different kinds of governments, different kinds of policies, what is now referred today as the exit option. And our study today, I think, contributes to that by giving us lots of new information about, um, about what states uh, are pursuing what policies, how free some are, and how unfree some others aren't. So today, I will we'll begin by having a presentation by our two authors, who I'm going to introduce both of them first, and then they will follow one another in uh, speaking about the, uh, the publication. Uh, the first uh, speaker today will be William Ruger. Uh, Will is an affiliated scholar with the Mercatus Center and an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the Texas State University, San Marcos. His research interests include international politics, security studies, civil-military relations, U.S. foreign policy, ethics, and uh, political theory. He earned his Ph.D. in politics from Brandeis and an A.B. from the College of William and Mary. Before coming to Texas State, uh, Will taught at Brigham Young and Wesleyan University. He was a fellow at the Liberty Fund from 2003 to 2007. Uh, he also serves as the book review editor for the Journal of Civil-Military Relations, Armed Forces, and Society. He's currently a research fellow in foreign policy studies at Cato and an affiliated scholar at Mercatus. Uh, he is also a veteran of the Afghanistan War. Our second speaker, uh, after Will finishes, will be Jason Sorens. Jason also is an affiliated scholar with Mercatus and an assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Buffalo, SUNY. His research interests include fiscal federalism, successionism, ethnic violence, and comparative federalism. He's published widely in such journals as Electoral Studies, Comparative Political Studies, State Politics, and uh, Policy Quarterly, and other journals. He received a BA in Economics and Philosophy from Washington and Lee, and a PhD in Political Science from Yale. In the fall, in October, and everyone can remember this, you'll be on the uh, lookout for his new book, Successionism, Identity, Interest, and Strategy, which will be appearing in the fall. So let's begin with Will Ruger. Sure. Firstly, uh, I want to thank uh, David Bowes again for uh, basically being patient with us and inviting us to do something here at Cato. I, I've long admired the Cato Institute uh, and uh, indeed am affiliated with it, uh, and so it's just a, a wonderful institution. Uh, and so I'd like to thank both uh, Cato for having us and David. Uh, I'd also be remiss not to thank the Mercatus Center. The Mercatus Center has been uh, greatly supportive of this research program. And uh, it's been wonderful to work with them, uh, particularly uh, Claire Morgan at uh, Mercatus. She's been wonderful to work with, and so I want to thank them. Now, you might ask yourself, uh, you know, what is the Freedom Index? Well, the Freedom Index uh, is the most comprehensive study uh, and ranking of freedom in the 50 states. Uh, like like uh, we said, it's published by the Mercatus Center. Uh, and for those of you that are uh, out there watching on the Internet, uh, it's available at www.mercatus.org, and uh, I, I really recommend that site. Not only can you find the study itself, uh, but we have some great little tools there where you can play around with the rankings yourself, uh, and it's just a really wonderful website that they've put together uh, as an annex to the formal study, and so I really recommend that to you, uh, as well as the published form. Now, the Freedom Index looks at fiscal regulatory uh, 
and uh, paternalistic policies that impact individual freedom. It includes everything from taxes to occupational licensing to gun control to homeschooling uh, to civil union laws. Uh, and, the, and the real question uh, that you might have is, you know, why should we study the states? And uh, it's because the federal system, as we heard earlier, uh, despite federalism's decline, and which is you know, much noted, uh, especially since the New Deal, uh, federalism still gives states a lot of direction over many key policies that affect our daily lives. Um, and part of that is because citizens, or states rather, have to compete uh, for citizens in their tax base. And so it's also important in that they can change their policies to attract uh, people uh, and to compete with other states in the system. Um, and so what we do with this program is, or with this study is we try to develop some quantitative indicators to compare the different states in terms of how friendly they are towards individual freedom. And the people that can use this, uh, it can be businesses that might be thinking about relocating, individuals that are thinking about moving, uh, maybe retirees that are trying to plan for retirement, want to move somewhere else. Uh, uh, not to mention policymakers and their staff in various states that might want to try to compete for those citizens and those businesses. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit later about how important freedom is to attracting new citizens. And some of the research we've done on this is, is really, I think, uh, one of the key findings of the paper. Now, you might ask yourself, well, how do we define freedom? What do we mean by freedom? This is a freedom index. I think it would be remiss if we didn't mention what it actually is. And you know, we have a, you know, you have a fairly formal definition, which you can see here on, on the PowerPoint. Um, but basically, we, well, the way we define freedom is that individuals should be allowed to do what they want with their lives, as long as they don't infringe on the rights of others. In other words, they should be allowed to live their life as they see fit, to kind of design their life project, if you will, and then live that way without being coerced by government. Um, now, government has a role, uh, of course, uh, to protect individual rights, uh, particularly when people exercise their uh, or behave in a way that infringes on others. Uh, but basically what we're talking about is we want a government that's strong enough to protect rights, uh, but not to infringe on them. Uh, so very much in the tradition of the founding fathers, of philosophers like John Locke and Immanuel Kant. Um, but also, and you'll see this later, one of the reasons uh, why you see Nozick's name up here is because Nozick talked about allowing people to engage in consensual behaviors with others. And that's what we're, how we really define freedom. And we also think it's really important, just like Nozick did in the third section of his book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, uh, the importance of people being able to choose to vote with their feet to different kinds of places. Now I'll turn to Jason to discuss the construction of the index, and then you'll see me back here to talk about some of the rankings. Okay, so here's how we created the index. Uh, we coded over 200 state and local public policies for all 50 states uh, for these two years, uh, January 1st, 2007, January 1st, 2009. Um, so the first study focused on the first date, and now we've updated the data and added new variables, as I'll speak about in a moment. Uh, for the fiscal data, tax and spending data, we get those from fiscal years 2005 to 6 and 2007 to 8, which are the latest years available. Uh, we standardize all the variables before weighting so that they can be compared to each other. Um, so basically, if, if you have a little bit of stats, um, here's what we do. Uh, we change each variable so that what it actually measures is the number of standard deviations freer than average. 
uh, on each policy that each state is. Okay, so that's our standardization. And then we combine all those variables through weights. Okay, so here's how we create those weights. Economic freedom, which is 50% of the index, consists equally of fiscal policy and regulatory policy. Each of those is then 25%. And personal freedom makes up 50% of the overall index. So then we uh, narrow that down to individual policy variables. Those individual variables are weighted by two criteria, the number of people directly harmed by these government interventions and the severity of the harm. Um, now, we fully concede that there is some subjectivity to this process, and for that reason, we make these data available online so that people can create new weights and develop uh, their own personalized freedom rankings if they so wish. Um, but here's what we did. We, um, to determine severity, uh, looked at the salience of state variants. So one instructive example here might be what we did with, uh, with marijuana laws. So if some state had fully legalized um, cultivation and distribution and possession of marijuana, as was on the ballot in California uh, just recently, that would be a really huge difference from the rest of the country. And that would definitely increase the salience of state variance on that issue and, and would mean that it should be weighted very highly. But since um, marijuana is illegal in every state, the, the slight exceptions that we do see, like medical marijuana, decriminalization of small amounts of possession and things like that, um, that's worth less than it might otherwise would be. Um, same thing with, say, occupational licensing. If some states um, didn't have any occupational licenses, then that would be a very salient difference between that, those states and the rest of the country. Um, so... Uh, we look at each issue category and determine how salient the variance is across states. And that, the more salient that variance is, the higher the weight, um, the less salient, the lower the weight. We also look at whether um, particular freedoms or rights have been um, constitutionalized. Do they appear in federal or state constitutions? If so, that's sort of prima facie evidence that... Um, people consider this to be a very salient freedom, a very fundamental freedom. So gun control, for instance, makes up a pretty significant chunk of our index. And one reason for that is that um, this is one uh, freedom that um, people have seen fit to put into constitutions. And that seems to indicate that for a lot of people, this is a very fundamental freedom. So this pie chart shows you how each of the different um, issue categories um, plays into the overall index. So you've got fiscal policy on the upper right, uh, which is equally composed of spending and taxation measures. And then on the bottom right, you've got regulatory policy. This includes economic regulations like labor regulation, minimum wage, uh, right to work, uh, workers' comp regulations, things like that. Uh, health insurance regulations like mandates and community rating. Um, occupational licensing laws that uh, require you to get government permission before practicing your trade. Uh, eminent domain reform. Uh, some states uh, still allow uh, governments to condemn and take uh, private property uh, for private uses rather than for purely public uses. Um, the liability system, the quality of the court system. Um, does the, the court system um, award frivolous judgments to, to plaintiffs? Uh, land use regulation, the extent to which um, state governments centralize control over the land use planning process. Um, 
and finally, utility restructuring is just a tiny part of this because um, and this is a salience issue in things like uh, natural gas, electricity. These are still government uh, monopolies, but in some cases, they've been deregulated to the consumer. Um, so that means the consumer can choose among different retailers, but they're all still uh, getting it from the same um, uh, transmission network. Okay. Paternalism um, constitutes personal freedom. Right? Paternalism is sort of the opposite of personal freedom. So these are all paternalistic policies um, that governments sometimes enact. Campaign finance regulations, um, education regulations like homeschooling laws. Um, we include marriage and civil union laws. Um, are you, as a same-sex couple, are you able to get, um, make a contract that the state recognizes, or are you forbidden from make, freely making uh, those kinds of contracts with each other? Um, we look at uh, mal sundry malaprohibita and civil liberties issues. This includes everything from uh, bans on raw milk sales to um, whether the police may take uh, DNA from everyone they arrest or not, or if you have to be convicted before they can do that. Uh, gambling laws, auto and road regulations like seatbelt and helmet laws, alcohol regulations, uh, tobacco regulations, including um, tax rates on cigarettes and uh, smoking bans. Uh, arrest rates for victimless crimes, uh, asset forfeiture rules, how easy is it for government to take uh, property that's been suspected of being used in a crime without actually showing um, that the owner has committed a crime, uh, marijuana laws, and then finally gun control. Um, a few notes, on if you're familiar with the first index, some changes that we've made from the first index. Fiscal policies are now, we believe, measured more accurately. We measure tax collections and spending as a percentage of personal income. Uh, we exclude mineral severance taxes, which otherwise make uh, Alaska and Wyoming look like really huge uh, governments because they bring in a lot of revenue from, uh, from oil and coal and things like that. Um, but those aren't really taxes that the people in the state pay, so we excluded them. Uh, and uh, we also include um, some government spending variables that are not adjusted for federal grants. Um, we also include ones that are adjusted for federal grants. So we, the difference um, from the last index is that we include uh, the former as well. Uh, new regulatory variables, we include Massachusetts' uh, individual health insurance mandate. We include Arizona's uh, E-Verify mandate on employers, uh, California's paid family leave mandate. Uh, we have a better uh, workers' comp regulation measure, a better occupational licensing measure. We also removed some environmental regulations that we now believe can be defended on libertarian grounds after giving some thought. Um, some things like maybe wetland regulations, uh, you could have uh, some libertarian justifications for those. So we, we removed them. Um, we do include also more variables measuring personal freedom, uh, more types of gun laws. We include bans on the um, mild hallucinogen uh, salvia divinorum. We include uh, laws that prohibit audio recording public officials, uh, laws about taking DNA from felony suspects, religious freedom restoration acts, better fireworks laws indicators, and a much improved asset forfeiture index, just to name a few things that are different. Okay, and that, with that, I'll hand it over to William. Thanks, Jason. And, uh, you know, you can see that a lot of thought went into how we constructed this. And, and we tried to uh, make this as uh, scientific, quote unquote, as possible. Uh, this isn't just us kind of pulling things out of the air. 
So now we get to the sexy part, right? Everybody wants to hear about the rankings. Everybody wants to know where our state falls. And uh, so let's talk about uh, the different areas. And like I said, economic freedom is about is 50% of the, of the index. Personal freedom is 50%. And here's how the states stack up. And you'll see some of the usual suspects, both on the good side and the bad side here. So if you look at South Dakota and New Hampshire, great in terms of economic freedom. Uh, but also North Dakota does well, Idaho, uh, Virginia. And then on the, on, the, on the downside, in terms of economic freedom, Hawaii, New Jersey, California, Alaska, New York. And kind of keep those in your head as we go along here. Now, here's personal freedom. You see states like Oregon and Vermont that you didn't see before, uh, but also states like Indiana and Alaska and Nevada. Now, surprisingly, maybe to some of you, and Jason will talk about this a little bit more, you see some of these, quote, unquote, deep blue states also on the bad side uh, in terms of less free, in terms of personal freedoms as well. So places like New York, uh, Illinois, Maryland. Uh, so it, it's, we, we'll, and we'll talk about this more, but it's not the case necessarily that you just have states on one side are free in economics and states, different states are free in the personal realm. And so here's our overall freedom ranking. And what you'll see here is that New Hampshire and South Dakota, if you looked at the numbers in any detail, uh, they're basically tied at the top of the list. These are the freest states in the union. They're followed by Indiana, Idaho, and Missouri. Uh, these are the states that did best. As far as the states that did most poorly, the usual suspects. Massachusetts, as uh, you're probably not surprised, given we've been talking about this since at least Dukakis, if not the Kennedys, Taxachusetts, right? Um, Hawaii, California, New Jersey, and New York. And one thing that's worth, me worth mentioning is that New York is substantially worse than every other state, okay? <laughs> so even compared to New Jersey, um, you know, no offense, uh, and I'm sure Chris Christie is doing a good job cleaning up that place. Um, but uh, nonetheless, these are the kind of overall freedom rankings. Uh, and I invite you to look at the complete chart in the uh, print version, uh, especially to look, about where, to look for where your state stands and why. Now, as far as regions go, one of the things you notice is that the regions differ in terms of how much respect in general those states have for freedom. So the best state, as you'll see, is, or the best region, rather, is the west-north-central. Okay. And uh, coming in second are the Mountain West states. So basically what you're talking about is the quote-unquote flyover country that is besmirched in so many parts of uh, the East Coast and West Coast. No offense to you Washingtonians here. Uh, but, the f but this part of the country is actually the freest area. So there's a lot of great things happening in the heartland of the U.S., as you can see from this study. And as a resident of one of those states, uh, I'm, I'm happy about this. Uh, now, in terms of the states that improved the, the most or that got worse uh, substantially, uh, here you have a list. And, and two of those states are, are worth talking about a little bit uh, on the plus side, Oregon and Nevada. These are states that improved, uh, particularly uh, Oregon, uh, because of improvements in their court system, as well as uh, recognizing civil union laws. Uh, and also in Oregon, the tax bite declined. As for Nevada, they recognize civil unions, which, which improved their ranking. On, on the deficit side, you'll notice uh, our good friend Massachusetts. And uh, one of the things that hurt their score 
was the health insurance mandate. Uh, I'm not sure if somebody running for president would like to hear this, but Romney Care, right? Uh, so this substantially hurt Massachusetts because uh, we code for that. Now, California, uh, you know, difficult fiscal situation there, uh, but also mandating uh, things like family leave, uh, paid family leave. Um, I'm not going to get into Wyoming. It's pretty technical, but part of the problem with Wyoming relates to its kind of unique position in terms of the overall and global economy in terms of energy and how that affects uh, their personal income and uh, tax revenues. Uh, so that's, uh, but, so I think the real focus should be on places like California, Massachusetts uh, in terms of that. Now I'm going to turn it over to Jason here for a second to talk about um, some of these more scientific things. Hopefully he'll, uh, he'll, he'll be, uh, um, I think, uh, pretty transparent about what these things mean. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about two really neat things about this, which is the relationship between freedom and migration and freedom and, and uh, economic growth. All right, so this, um, this scatter plot uh, simply plots every state on personal freedom on the y-axis and economic freedom on the x-axis. Um, so over at the, the far right, you get um, South Dakota as a state that has lots and lots of economic freedom, kind of mediocre on, on personal freedom, and that's good for getting it to number two overall. New Hampshire, um, somewhat more personal freedom, um, a little bit less economic freedom, and that's good for number one in the index. Um, meanwhile, on personal freedom, you see Oregon, Vermont, Nevada, Indiana, very different states uh, politically, but all sharing... Um, uh, lots of lots of personal freedom. Uh, Maryland is there at the bottom on personal freedom, but just mediocre on economic freedom. Um, we could talk about some reasons for that. Uh, so what we see here is that um, we don't get a a, a traditional two dimensional you know left right libertarian populist kind of dimension here, um, right? So the this, the liberal states, the really deep blue states, are just bad on freedom in general. Uh, they tend to be nanny states as well as big government, um, high-tax states, New York, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, all those uh, examples. And it tends to be places like Vermont and Oregon, kind of somewhat rural, somewhat crunchy kind of blue states. Those are the ones where you actually will get some of the personal freedoms. All right, so let's take a look at the relationship between citizen ideology and freedom. Um, so the, in the upper left, we see... Um, a scatter plot with a fit line for personal freedom on the y-axis. And on the x-axis, we have Democratic plus Green presidential vote share in 2008. And we see that it's a, it's a curve that's almost flat, but then dives downward somewhat substantially as you get to the highly Democratic states uh, that tend to have less personal freedom. The shaded area is a 95% margin of error. Um, and then with economic freedom, it's a much steeper curve. Now, that does make some sense, right? So with personal freedom, conservative states fall down on some things, like same-sex civil unions, like marijuana laws, sometimes alcohol regulations, gambling laws. Um, but then liberal states fall down on some things, tobacco regulations, education regulations, things like that. Um, so both liberal and conservative states, they kind of, those things tend to wash out. Um, so there's not much of a relationship between ideology and personal freedom. But between ideology and economic freedom, there's a much stronger relationship where it's really um, particularly moderately conservative, not necessarily the extremely conservative states, but sort of moderately conservative states that do best on economic freedom. And there's the deep, deep blue states at the far right that do quite badly. Then, and then finally, we have uh, citizen ideology and overall freedom, 
uh, in this chart, and it's sort of a kind of a mix between the personal and economic. It's a somewhat steep curve. Um, and with that, I'll turn it back over to William for consequences of freedom. Yeah, two of the biggest consequences from freedom, uh, of freedom, aside from just the basic notion that it's, uh, uh, it's a great thing to live freely without constraints of others, uh, which I, I, I shouldn't think we should just talk about the means of, uh, of freedom, but two of the great co interesting consequences is that freedom has a huge impact on in-migration. So states, and I'm not going to go through the math here uh, or the, the, the model here, but states that are freer attract citizens and their tax dollars. And states that are less free are hemorrhaging citizens. Uh, so if you think about places like California that are losing substantial amount of people, New York has lost uh, almost 10%, I think, of its 2,000 population. Uh, these are people that are leaving. And what we find here is that there's a correlation between both economic and personal freedom and in migration rates. So it's not just that people are moving to states that have more jobs. They're also moving to places that are more personally free. And one thing that we should be careful about here is that a lot of people would say, oh, you know, people are moving to Texas and Arizona and Florida because it's great weather. Actually, if you control for weather and cost of living, so it's not just cheap houses or, uh, or uh, great weather, Controlling for those variables, it's still a significant relationship between freedom, both in the economic and personal realm, and in migration, out migration. And this is important because policymakers, even if they don't love freedom as much as folks at the Cato Institute, policymakers are going to have to take this into account when they're thinking about making policies. They're going to drive people away if they start to constrain freedom too greatly in one realm or the other. And People are going to vote with their feet, and it's not something that they control in this country, uh, at least yet. Um, and so we have to be very, uh, so they have, they're going to have to be very careful uh, about this. The other important thing is that you would expect, if, if what classical liberals and economists have been telling us since Adam Smith, let's say, you would expect that the system of natural liberty, the freedom, uh, is going to correlate with economic growth. Right? If your economic freedom should correlate with economic growth in any study, if, if a study didn't have that, then we might be surprised because we would expect that theoretically. Uh, and that is the case. We found that in our study, that economic growth uh, does correlate with economic freedom. And so that tells you, I think, that our study is valid in, uh, or it gives confidence that it's valid. But it's also an important consequence that states are going to have to realize and their taxpayers is that if they start to, to restrict the economic freedom of businesses, corporations, citizens of their states, um, that that's going to impact their economic growth and then all of the sequela that, rev that result from that. And so it's really important that, uh, uh, that they think about these things when they create policies. And with that, we're going to kind of end here with the formal part of the presentation. But like I said, I'd invite you to look at the document uh, at uh, the Mercatus website. And if you have particular questions about the methodology, you know, feel free to email us or, or go to our uh, data. We make all of our data open and available to everyone. Okay? It's a very transparent study. We're not selling it. Uh, you want to look how we've constructed the index? Go for it. Uh, and maybe use the data on your own if you want to construct something a little bit different. Uh, with that, I'll, I'll end. And thank you very much.
Uh, thanks, Will, and thanks, Jason. Uh, today we have as our commentator, I think, I remember when David told me uh, that he had um, um, gotten Mr. Barone to do this, that we have, I think, really the single best person to talk about these kinds of issues. Um, Michael Barone will be known to many of you. He is a senior political analyst at the Washington Examiner, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's also a contributor to Fox News. He is a principal co-author of the Almanac of American Politics, which itself is a Washington institution, now uh, in excess of its 20th edition. Uh, the you know, if you haven't read it or haven't used it, I would urge you to do so. It's just an amazing treasure trove of information, not only about the current uh, 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 members of Congress and their districts, but also that gives you, which is so rare, uh, a very broad understanding of the history and how politics came to be the way it is and how it differs from state to state and congressional district to congressional district. Michael is also a widely published author of many fine books. Um, his book, Our Country, The Shaping of America from Roosevelt to Reagan, was uh, widely praised. He wrote also The New Americans, How the Melting Pot Can Work Again, Hard America, Soft America. And his latest book, Our First Revolution, The Remarkable British Upheaval That Inspired America's Founding Fathers, uh, has just appeared. Um, over the years, he's written for just about every publication you can think of, including The Economist, The Times Literary uh, Supplement. His column is syndicated by Creators Syndicate. He lives here in Washington, and for purposes of today, he's traveled to all 50 states and all 435 congressional districts, which yields some of the very specific uh, descriptions in the Almanac that I recommend to you. Uh, and he has traveled to 51 foreign co countries. We're very happy to have to with us today, Michael Barone. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank everybody responsible uh, for this presentation here, John Samples and the Cato Institute, uh, William Ruger's Jason Sorens and the Mercatus Center, uh, and Willard Carrier, the inventor of the air conditioner, uh, <laughs> without whom this meeting would be much more sparsely attended uh, at a time when it's about 98 degrees outside here in Washington. Um, the um, uh, John Sample started off this discussion talking about federalism and the continuing uh, vitality of it. And uh, I think uh, many on the right-hand side of the political spectrum, on the libertarian side of the, uh, of, of the spectrum, um, you know, complain that federalism uh, is uh, not as important as it used to be, uh, has been eroded by a rampaging federal government. Um, there certainly is something to those complaints, and yet federalism continues to be a major force. Uh, and as the economist Alfred Hirschman says, you have, you know, the options of vote uh, or exit here. Uh, and one of the things that we've seen, uh, as William Rugers pointed out in the last part of his presentation, is that Americans have taken advantage of the option of exit. Uh, in addition, the states are, as uh, Justice Brandeis uh, said, uh, laboratories of reform, and we get uh, interesting uh, reforms coming out of them, things I never would have predicted. I mean, we are living at a time when it seems to me that we are probably seeing the outlawing of cigarettes and the legalization of marijuana. 
Uh, this is a slow process that's going on. Uh, you see the cigarette um, prohibitions uh, growing in various places and so forth. I don't know if California has a provision that pails of water are poured over the head of anyone smoking outside in Palo Alto. Um, but on the other hand, if you go to Google Maps, you can find the map of medical marijuana dispensaries in uh, Los Angeles, which looks a lot like the map of where there are white people who voted for Obama. Uh, <laughs> and so basically, you know, if you look at those 40s movies, people are going, you know, with the cigarettes and so forth. I suppose in the movies in the 2040s, we're going to see them going, and uh, so forth, uh, but uh, never the twain shall meet. Uh, so one form of um, perhaps lung injuring uh, uh, simulant is going away at the wayside, and another form is coming into practice, and this is happening uh, slowly across the nation. When I was in my home state of Michigan recently, uh, one of the issues there is mar medical marijuana dispensaries, and what are your requirements for doing this, and who's going to regulate it, and what the local prosecutors are doing, and so forth. So we don't see congressmen debating this issue, uh, but it's a live issue for people in different parts of America. Uh, and we've seen other kinds of federalism uh, on some of the cultural issues, some of which are uh, mentioned here. Um, we've seen... Uh, you know, before the Supreme Court stepped in with Roe v. Wade, we saw uh, states moving toward or to legalization of abortion. You had, at the time that decision came down in January 1973, 16 states with 41 percent of the population uh, having substantially liberalized their abortion laws or made abortion more legally available. Um, a process that probably would have continued in the absence of the uh, Supreme Court decision. Um, but uh, was sort of cut off there and the issue was nationalized. But we see other things. Um, we have seen a movement towards more recognition of gay rights, of civil unions, and of same-sex marriage in some states, but definitely not in uh, certain others. We're getting experiments with this. The nation will be able to watch uh, what's going on. The uh, um, And at the same time, you know, I... It raises the question for me sometimes, is the major threat to the family um, come from uh, a few people who want to get married or a much larger number of people who want to get divorced? Uh, we've seen divorce law change 40 years ago towards no-fault divorce in just about every state. I'm not aware of any move to move that back on the part of any of the cultural conservative groups and so forth. I've talked to some people about it. I don't have any particular ideas along that line myself. Um, but it's an interesting development. It tells us something about our society. Uh, so we can see some of those things, uh, that there are still a lot of lively issues that are determined here. And of course, uh, we do have the, uh, uh, the difference in economic regulation as well as personal freedom regulation. Uh, which has produced a lot of changes. Um, some states, you think of Massachusetts, this is sort of the New England diaspora, the uh, colonial Yankees who were penned up in New England because none of the rest of the colonists wanted to have anything to do with them, who were kind of, they were very moralistic and very bossy. Uh, and we applaud some of their moralisms. Uh, they gave the country the abolition of slavery movement. 
uh, women's rights, equal rights for women. We, we all think that those are good ideas. Uh, they also gave us other ideas like the temperance movement uh, as they moved across the west, across the northern part of the country. Uh, and I think we can still see their influence in the uh, personal freedom and economic freedom uh, indexes that are provided here. Um, they have a clear idea what's right or wrong. That may change over time, but they do have it, and they are not at all afraid to use legislation and the coercion of government uh, to enforce that on other people, and that's uh, part of the process that we're seeing here. Um, we have, um, uh, on the other hand, you get certain exceptions to that rule, and even in New England, you get uh, the state of New Hampshire. Uh, if you go back to colonial history, the state of New Hampshire was a smuggler's paradise where they did not have an established church telling people what to do as they did in Massachusetts. Uh, the basic character and personality of the state has continued uh, more than 200 years later. Um, they have license plate there, which as many of you know says, live free or die. Uh, interestingly, and perhaps in contravention of that principle, the state did prosecute a man who put adhesive tape over the words live free or die, uh, some kind of a pacifist or something or an anti-war guy, and they said, no, you can't deface your state license plate. So I thought that was a little bit, uh, you know, inconsistent on the part of the state authorities in New Hampshire. But. Uh, live free or not, and don't deface your license plate. Uh, the, uh, so you have these, these various things, these various contradictions in it that are kind of amusing. And the authors of this project have given us uh, access uh, usefully today to a whole set of specific data and the ability to use the internet to change the rules here so we can see different things. There are certain areas where you know we have arguments or one might have arguments about what is economic freedom or not. The authors referred, for example, to wetlands regulation. Um, you know, uh, are you trying to preserve ducks or are you trying to keep people from building a Walmart where there's a puddle? Um, there are ways to have arguments about that. Um, but I think that uh, one of William Ruger's last points is really uh, correct, and that is the demographic impact uh, of this. And we can measure it over short periods of time, but I think it's even more useful and revealing to look, over, look at it over rather longer periods of decades. Uh, take the decades 1970 to 2010, which happens to coincide with the periods when I've been writing this almanac of American politics. In 19 state populations, <coughs> in 1970, my home state of Michigan had 8 million people. We're rounding off here, and it rounds off pretty close to this. Uh, in 2010, it had 9 million people. It's a gain of 1 million. New York State, once the nation's, for a long time, the nation's largest state, in 1970, had 18 million people. In 2010, it had 19 million people gain of 1 million over 40 years. Uh, in 19, now, on the overall freedom scale, Michigan ranks number 27, New York ranks number 50 with a special gold star for being particularly egregiously bad. <laughs> um, Texas, which ranks number 14, uh, in 1970, Texas had 11 million people. In 2010, it had 25 million people. Um, I think public policy played some difference, uh, made some difference, and helps to explain in important ways those results. Um, let me conclude here with just one criticism of a major omission in this study, which I take as a personal affront. 
Um, and that is the measured, as the authors measured, as they said, these things in all 50 states, but they did not include my home jurisdiction of the District of Columbia. <laughs> and uh, I would just add uh, my own uh, view on that. Uh, on, they've got a category for all 50 states where they give policy regulations, you know, allow people to buy guns and things like that. Um, don't tax them so much. I think that if they had included the District of Columbia, they would have needed only one policy regulation, a recommendation, which would be move to Virginia. So <laughs> with that, I'll conclude. Thank you very much. Uh, the idea of Virginia, Michael's comments about Massachusetts reminded me of David Hackett Fisher's famous book, Albion Seed, about the cultures of the various colonies. And there's a large section in there about Virginia itself. And it, it's somewhat confusing here because uh, uh, Hackett Fisher talks about the Cavalier origins, which certainly weren't Puritan, the exact opposite in terms of English politics. But it was certainly the Cavalier origins of uh, Virginia were very hierarchical. In other words, you would not expect at all from that kind of culture that Virginia today would turn up number nine in the overall freedom index. In other words, a very libertarian state. So I'm, uh, for personal reasons, I'm going to take the reason that happened was all of those Scots-Irish pouring down through the Appalachians that made Virginia into away from a cavalier state and into a free state. So now we're going to go to the Q&A. Uh, our authors will be here and sit at the, the desk and uh, speak into their microphones. And we'll, I will uh, uh, single out people. Now, when I do, please wait for the microphone to come to you and tell us who you are and any affiliation you might want to give. And also, please uh, have your question in the form of a question. Let's start down here on the left side. Uh, Steve Hankin, no affiliation. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, you made a point about controlling for um, cheap housing and uh, something else you controlled for. Uh, cost of living and climate. Cost, uh, climate. Um, how did you control for those in de deciding that immigration was still a good factor? Because that's what you, you had said that. Um, well, so basically, we uh, we try to um, produce a statistical model of in migration from other states. So we exclude foreign immigration altogether. That doesn't play any role in, in our model. And um, so we we see whether freedom affects um, in migration to a state, and whether climate affects in migration to a state, and cost of living. It turns out um, cost of living has very little effect, surprisingly, on on in migration. Um, Maybe because um, you know it's really through freedom that that um, you know freedom affects cost of living, and so with freedom in the model, that's what's driving the result. Um, but climate does have an effect. So warmer states attract people. But even though warmer states attract people, it's also the case that freedom attracts people. So one example of how this works in practice: um, take Idaho. Idaho is a cold state, um, but um, it had net in-migration of 7.7% over 2000 to 2009, which is one of the highest in the country. People flocking to Idaho even though it's cold. In New England, the only New England state to attract people was New Hampshire. Right, so that, it tells us something. Even when we control for climate, cost of living, it's freedom that's driving people to move to certain states. 
No, we just look at the statistics. Um, you know, we, we measure the amount of people who moved in as a percentage of starting population and try to predict uh, which states got the most. You know, and I think this issue is important because you, you have, you know, esteemed and, and, and you know, you know, I think he does great work, but uh, Harvard economist uh, Ed Glazer, you know, talks a lot about how the big issue is uh, housing costs. Um, but that's not actually, uh, in our view, what, what's driving things, especially because freedom is going to affect those, uh, those costs, right? Uh, and so you really have to look at that uh, primary variable, uh, not the intervening variable. Well, I, you, if you look, when you say people have been moving to the south, there are a lot of exceptions to that. I mean, they don't move to Louisiana, which has the uh, disadvantage singular among the states of having had a culture that is derived from the French. Uh, <laughs> and, a, and a system of law. Um, and, you know, coastal California, which has about the most pleasant climate in the United States, uh, ain't growing uh, very fast. I mean, San Diego County, which has just a beautiful climate, is um, grew at less than the national average in the last decade. So some of the factors that they're talking about there. Uh, and people will head out to some, you know, unlikely territory, but I will only add this, that the first day I was in Boise, Idaho, you may say it's a cold climate, but it was 108 degrees, so <laughs> it had me fooled. Okay, the only other thing I would say is if you want to direct your question to a specific member of the panel, please just mention that, but all, all members will have uh, a chance to speak if they want to. Let's, Jim Audison, please, right here. Uh, thank you. Jim Otteson, uh, Yeshiva University and the Fund for American Studies. Um, I'm looking at your overall freedom ranking, and it goes from, so New Hampshire's number one at uh, 0 0.441, mm -hmm. and New York is number 50 at negative 0.752. I don't really know what those numbers mean, um, but I'm wondering if you can tell me how big of a difference between these numbers actually makes a difference. So how much of a difference does there need to be before a resident, a citizen, would actually notice a difference? Um, so I don't know if this will help or be at all intuitive, but um, a, a one-point difference on the overall freedom scale means that a state is one percentage point above average, one, one standard deviation above average on every single policy. Right, so um, what that tells us, the difference between New Hampshire and New York is over one, right? Uh, and that tells us that New Hampshire is one standard deviation uh, better than New York on average across every single policy that we track, which is 200 policies. So that, that's a very large difference. Um, now, you know, and that's the kind of difference that is going to impact your daily life. Uh, in terms of, you know, whether you're, you know, you want your donuts with or without trans fats, uh, or whether you want to be able to uh, make the kind of contracts that Jason was talking about. Uh, so it's not merely a statistical um, uh, difference that, uh, you know, we see in these numbers, but we're not sure how it affects us. It's going to affect you on the ground in terms of how you live. You know, with the, with the migration model, we found is that a half point difference um, will increase migration by five percentage points. Um, of your 2,000 population, which is about double the effect of a, of a difference in January temperature of 20 degrees, which is the difference between Chicago and Birmingham. So freedom seems to matter more than, than climate, right? Chicago and Birmingham, cold, warm climate. Um, so it's, it's, it's a big effect. Right, and, and that's the same thing on economic growth. So a 0.25 unit increase in economic freedom 
is going to increase the average annual growth rate uh, in personal income by about 0.25 uh, percentage points. That's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go up into the top tier here on the left here, the gentleman with the green tie. I can't go. Sorry to be so impersonal. Not working. Check. There. Jacob Feldman. I'm with Americans for Tax Reform. Read your study yesterday. It was really great. Um, I had a question about, again, about migration. Uh, I've, you guys uh, talked about population migration. I was wondering if you had any findings on income that might have transferred with the with those individuals and or capital. Yeah. Didn't ATR do some study on that that you're trying to? Publicize. <laughs> I saw a publicity thing recently that, you know, state of Michigan has lost so much money in tax money because of people that moved out of the state and had income somewhere else. And certainly, uh, you know, this is what's one of the things that's happening. I mean, in California, which has had a huge domestic out-migration, including a lot of affluent people, has lost a lot of tax money. It's had a huge immigrant in-migration some of which are people that make a great deal of money, but very many of them are, are low-income people who... Um, what? Tax Foundation, that's the tax... The Tax Foundation has a study on that. Okay, that's the one that I saw the other day. So check out the Tax Foundation for that data. Uh, gentleman right on the aisle here in the back. Noel Johnson at George Mason University. Uh, so I was just thinking for the uh, economic um, component of the index, do you do anything with federal transfers to the states to take that into account? Because I know several of the states that score very high, like um, the Dakotas are in there, but in particular, I think, like some of the southern states, Mississippi, um, Alaska, which I don't think they did too well, but they do very well on the personal regulations. But it just seems like the Fed transfers, a lot of the states that are big talk, you know, with tax freedom and things like this, are getting a lot, you know, from the feds. Yeah, um, so those, that will play into our fiscal data. So government spending, for instance, if you take lots of federal grants, um, you're going to have high state government spending, and that's going to hurt you in our index. But we also include, we don't want it to hurt you too much, so we, we also include and weight equally variables that exclude federal grants and basically um, correct your, your state government spending uh, for the amount that you receive in federal grants. Our logic there was that, um, you know, if they're, if they're giving it to you, it's very hard for a politician to say no anywhere. Um, and so the reason why a place like, um, you know, New York or New Jersey doesn't get that much in federal grants per capita is that it's, it's just a rich state, so it has less need, and that plays a role in a lot of these federal grants. Um, but if the, if the grants were offered to them, they would take it just like Mississippi does, uh, we're, we're pretty sure. So, um, so yeah, you can, you can ding um, some of the, the, the poor southern states, for instance, for that. And you could say, yeah, you're taking a lot of federal grants. Um, don't be such hypocrites. But everyone's doing it, and it's really hard to say no to that. And we didn't want to punish them too much for, for doing that. Where do defense okay. expenditures come in? What, what, uh, 
Uh, they don't play in because that's the direct federal expenditure that the state go it doesn't go through the state government. So yeah, that doesn't. Yeah. Mean. And also, we're trying to measure the intervention of your local government uh, in your of your state government in your life, either economically or personally. And those things, they 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 affect you, but they filter through the federal government. So blame Washington, um, not uh, you know Austin. Gentleman right here in the again in the green tie, right in the middle. Hello, my name is uh, Robert Moore. I'm a student at Denison University, which is located in number 42, Ohio. Um, I wanted to ask about the consequences in particular, um, the migration consequence. When you control for economic growth, is it still a significant factor? We, uh, this is a new project we're working on, and the data are somewhat preliminary, but we create a, a structural model where we look at both economic growth and migration within the same model. Right, with arrows going both ways. It's a, it's a big... Complicated. Lots of moving <laughs> parts. But we find that um, what, what's happening there is more or less what these data kind of point to, which is that, um, yeah, economic growth drives some migration, and economic freedom drives some growth. But then economic and personal freedom also still drive migration along with that. So the arrows are going in, in, in both circles, so to speak. Uh, gentleman right there, oh, to your right. Yeah, David Lowenthal, I'm an intern here. Um, my question is for either of the authors. I was wondering if you found a correlation between political structure and freedom. For instance, uh, if governors were term lim limited, if you had direct election of, of judges or appointment, if you had a bicameral or unicameral legislature, uh, more direct democracy, is there any... Uh, correlation in the way states are actually politically set up that are conducive to freedom. Yeah, yeah we've well, we've we have been um, doing some some work on this. We we worked on on term limits. Um, I'll, I'll let William talk a little bit about that. We worked on um, the initiative. We do find that states uh, with an easier initiative process have a little bit lower uh, tax burden, tax collections as a percentage of personal income. Um, yeah, I mean, this is work that isn't in the study, just to be clear. Yeah. It's in some other work we're doing. And uh, um, uh, so I don't want to preempt that too much because it's not out yet. Uh, but one of the things we do find is that uh, there's a correlation between freedom and citizen legislatures. So, um, so the term kind of professional legislatures in the political science jargon, it sounds really good like you'd want one, right? But it really doesn't necessarily mean they're more competent or better. Uh, uh, there is a, you know, this is generally uh, a bad thing for uh, freedom. Uh, the states that have more have greater citizen legislatures, you know. So, uh, like like my state, I live in Texas. You know, we only have the legislature in session once every two years. I mean, wouldn't that be great if these guys down the street were only here once every two years or every ten years? Um, <laughs> you know, so, uh, uh, so. Those types of things, uh, I think, are helpful. And, and, you know, New Hampshire is a perfect example of that. I mean, uh, New Hampshire is a state that has a huge legislature. Uh, they don't get paid very much. Uh, the session lengths aren't very long. Uh, they don't have a lot of staff. Uh, it's basically, uh, you know, it's a lot of, uh, of, uh, of real true citizens, not that, you know, professional politicians don't hold that status either, but uh, uh, in the sense that they're people who are among us, and uh, we think that that matters. 
The interesting thing about term limits is that, uh, you know, like most people, uh, you know, we thought uh, our hypothesis going into some of this research is that term limits would uh, impact uh, freedom, uh, particularly because you would think with term limits you'd have more citizen legislatures. Uh, but actually, term limits is kind of a wash. Uh, it doesn't really have a big impact. Um, you know, it's not the story I wish we could tell, but we're scientists uh, at the end of the day. I mean, we have our own normative values, but if the story ain't there, the story ain't there. Uh, and you, ha you just have to be honest about that. Uh, does it mean we should get rid of term limits? No, there might be other reasons why you want to have term limits, but at least in terms of, of freedom, it's not, a, it's not as big a deal as maybe people hoped for. And that's actually what the literature on term limits says, period. And there's a lot of great studies of this by political scientists in which all kinds of things that people wanted or didn't want out of this on, on, the, on different sides of the term limit debates, it didn't necessarily play out the way either of them thought. Um, and in that sense, it's like what uh, you know, Mr. Barone said, which is that one of the great things about federalism is it allows us to experiment. Uh, you, know, you talked about Justice Brandeis's quotation, and, and that's one of the great things about having a real robust federal system. And, and um, you know, there are downsides uh, of, of giving too much power to the states. Uh, there's a great book. One of the books that really influenced me a lot uh, when I was uh, in grad school was a book by Clint uh, Bullock called Grassroots Tyranny that was actually published by the Cato Institute, if I'm rem remembering correctly. And so there are downsides of, of, de of you know, decentralization. Uh, but in particular, especially in, in you know in the the era we live in, in which fortunately uh, we don't have things like Jim Crow anymore, uh, we're in an era in which uh, some of those uh, bad things about uh, decentralization um, uh, they're not. I wouldn't say that they're gone, but there is not as big a worry, and therefore it's great to have greater central uh, decentralization now. Uh, and hopefully we can avoid some of that grassroots uh, tyranny that you've seen in the past. One, one footnote on unicameral legislation. There's only one in Nebraska. It ranks number 23 in overall freedom. Suggests doesn't make any difference. Uh, gentleman sitting on the front row in the back there. I don't think we're going to get to everyone today. Lou Pratt, retired. Is there any correlation between the advent of air conditioning, since you mentioned a carrier, <laughs> and the federal deficit or the federal expenditures? We can spend money year-round, whereas uh, legislatures <laughs> would not have done that 50, 70 years ago. The capital started being air conditioned in the 1920s, I think. I mean, that's a long time. It's actually, yeah, movie theaters in the capital, U.S. capital, were among the first buildings to be air conditioned. Franklin Roosevelt. This works against your theory. Franklin Roosevelt did not allow air conditioning in the White House because he didn't like air conditioning, and he was president, and that was that. <laughs> the, the other question is, did you look at zoning as a factor? In other words, very restrictive zoning like you may have in uh, Montgomery County or what have you, make the housing costs higher. In Texas, you have a lot less zoning, so it's a lot freer. Was that a factor at all? It was too difficult for us to get uh, detailed zoning data nationally, but what we do have are um, centralized uh, land use policies. So if the, if the state requires local governments to have a detailed land use ordinance, then that's a negative. Um, so we code basically state policies requiring local governments to have these, um, these things. I should mention as a Cato representative that our uh, scholar Randall O'Toole has done a lot of work on this area about the impact of zoning and, and its effects. So you can find those studies by Randall O'Toole on the Cato website. Gentlemen here in the front row. 
Hi, Joe Hinchman with the Tax Foundation. Thanks for the plug. Uh, in looking at the, the bottom 10 states, uh, a lot of them are, well, all of them are sort of not surprising, at least to me, uh, except one. Uh, Alaska, at number 44, sort of has this reputation of this anything-goes frontier, caribou-shooting kind of place. Uh, <laughs> so I was just wondering how, what you found that demolishes that stereotype of Alaska. It's bad on economics. Yeah. Uh, pretty much all the way around. It has uh, very high state government spending. Something like, I think I want to say 40% of personal income is accounted by state and local government spending. So it says, you know, that's almost, you add that to the federal uh, expenditures in Alaska, and we're talking about Swedish levels of 60% you know, percent plus government spending as a percentage of the economy. Um, and also uh, bad labor regulations is a highly unionized state uh, with a lot of things that go along with that. Yeah, but it does do well on personal freedom, so it's not an entirely bad story. Um, well, it doesn't have a state income tax or sales tax. That's right. I mean, they've yeah. got the oil royalties are paid into state government. It's a highly variable income stream. Yeah. And yeah, so it's... it's, it's paid into, do, do you count payments into the permanent fund or the permanent fund where they paid oil royalties into it and citizens are entitled to a check, a dividend check, in varying amounts every year? No, we, we don't in include that. Um, so, it, it, you know, it is difficult to, to handle Alaska because, you know, this is sort of a philosophical question. Is government spending bad if it's almost free to the citizen, free money, you know, it's coming from this oil? We still think it is kind of bad. You know, there's a sort of a dependence and a crowding out effect there. Um, better just to rebate it, like through the permanent fund, rather than operate government agencies, which is what Alaska is mostly doing with it. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to create people with a, a kind of dependent mindset that, money has to flow through the system to get to you, and it's free, right? And, you know, like Milton said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's going to be a bite somewhere. But the Alaska, I think, you know, one does say the Alaska voters have resisted at times when state revenues from oil royalties have plummeted, uh, invading the capital uh, or even the, I think, the income of the permanent fund to handle permanent, uh, handle temporary spending. They have regard, seem to regard the permanent fund, which gets most of its money now from investments on capital rather than from oil royalties, as a permanent source of wealth for people in Alaska, and you don't spend capital. Uh, mm. They've behaved responsibly in that way rather than plundering uh, the permanent fund for current consumption. Just a remark in passing, one of the things in the federalism literature and political science is there's an argument that the state's no longer all that distinctive and that, you know, basically you can't really talk about a strong federalism because there's a stronger national ideal. But one of the things I notice as we talk through this is that, you know, really states are distinctive. They still have different political cultures and they are different in important ways. And that, that's really an a tax and assumption, I think, that's out there in the scholarship. Uh, the woman in the back on my right. Um, Judy Vandegrift, University of Maryland, University College. Um, I object to you moving to Virginia. Some of us do have to live in Maryland because we're being paid by the state of Maryland. Um, your, uh, my question has to do with the uh, statistics that you have, particularly on the state of Nevada, um, where you have such high index for a good place to live, but it's high unemployment rate. And were these figures put together before the big unemployment rates hit about 2006 to 2011? 
They're, uh, well, the policy data are as of January 1st, 2009. So they do take into account some of the effects of the recession. Um, yeah, Nevada had a big property bust in part because it was such a huge attraction for the previous decade. And so now it is dealing with that high unemployment rate. Um, you know, whereas a, you know, a state like South Dakota, for instance, which also does very well, but, you know, it gets, it's had modest in migration because of the climate. Um, you know, you didn't, you didn't get that property bust. In fact, I don't think you even had a recession in South Dakota. I don't think their unemployment rate ever cracked 5%. But they've had slightly less growth in the past because the big business in the state is the credit card business yeah. in Sioux Falls, and uh, that has not generated more new employment lately. I mean, in Nevada... <laughs> Uh, you know, from 1990 till 2007, I think, uh, the census estimates for years from July 1 to July 1, Nevada was in all but one of those years the fastest-growing state in percentage terms. Um, that's no longer the case. Uh, one index, gambling revenues, gaming revenues, went down from 06 to 07. Yeah, that's busting the old economic adage that uh, the gambling is a recession-proof industry, and at that point, the um, uh, you know the the hotel things, and you know Las Vegas had something like 130,000 rooms with 60,000 under construction, and all of a sudden, the gaming revenues go down. That's the moment when you have uh, the two-word response, of which I'll relay the only first word to you, which is "oh." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, but you're going to catch some of that. If you're using 09 figures, you're going to catch a fair amount of that development, I think, in, in the policy responses. Roger Ream here in the front. Roger Ream, the Fund for American Studies. Uh, uh, probably 20 years ago, I was involved in a study uh, that was commissioned by the Virginia State Chamber of Commerce. And what I l learned being part of that is what they wanted to see in Virginia was uh, a low tax environment, but lots of government spending on education, on transportation, roads, things that uh, would help enhance the climate for attracting employees to the state and building their companies. You mentioned at the beginning you hope this will be used by companies in relocating. Do you think uh, it's important in looking at fiscal policy how the money's being, what the money's being spent on, and that if states are spending the money on certain things that business like, uh, that's more important than how much it's spending, it's what it's spending it on, and that it might be more attractive in a state where government's spending a lot of money on good transportation systems, on roads, on, on, on higher education, on K through 12 education that, that seems like many businesses like to see. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we have to be careful about is, uh, you know, just because business likes it, that doesn't make it pro-capitalism. Um, and, you know, businesses love rent-seeking. Uh, that's an unfortunate thing because you can get, uh, you know, strange coalitions. Um, uh, but, you know, certainly, you know, there's a role for government to play in creating an atmosphere in which economic growth can occur. Um, you know, uh, ideally that'll be on the law and order side, and and uh, less on providing particular benefits. But yeah, I'm, I mean, m m uh, you know, myself. I mean, I think that's uh, uh, you know, for for example, education spending. It's it's less bad. Um, you know, I I would 
I would prefer to move to uh, kind of um, more choice-based systems with, in terms of public, public schools, if you're going to have public schools to begin with, uh, which is uh, certainly something we can debate. Uh, this has been something that, as you well know, I, um, you know has divided classical liberals and, and quote-unquote libertarians for a long time about whether the state should be engaged in things to create the proper type of citizens for a free society or whether it should be left to parents in the same way, you know, where you buy your groceries should be left up to uh, the market. Um, so, um, so, but, you know, just intuitively, and we don't capture this in the study, intuitively, yeah, there's some spending that's going to be less harmful, if you will, especially to the character of citizens. And that's one of the things, and I, I don't want to rain on Jason's parade because he says this in a lot of the talks we've given, so I'll let him at it, but I'll just say that this is where education itself is really critical because you're going to be, you know, it, with certain types of education spending, that has the potential for creating a certain type of, of democratic man and woman. And that might not be uh, liberty man and woman uh, in the sense that uh, education can affect the kinds of things that, they, that people think. Um, and I, I, Jason, I know this is your thing, so I'm going to let you go from there if you want to. Well, you said it really well, I think. But <laughs> I would just say, you know, you, 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 there is an argument to be made that if the government is going to monopolize education and transportation systems, then they ought to take care of them. Um, but ideally, maybe they shouldn't monopolize them to begin with. I think it's beyond, it's beyond the capacity of your study to decide yeah, whether. that's right. I mean, maybe hiring a libertarian economist would look good to us, but getting more university administrators <laughs> moves us towards an argument that gets us in the direction of capital punishment. So, um, <laughs> you know, but you can't qualitatively, right. you know, should, you know, should the Silver Line, Metro Silver Line to Dulles have an underground uh, terminal at an extra $300 million or an above ground terminal? Uh, gentleman right here in another green tie, yes. My name is Peter Leaf, State Policy Network, and I come from state number 50, New York. Um, <laughs> my, question, hear that. my question is about the, uh, if there's there. any correlation between population density and a state being less free. Uh, I look at the map here and I see New York, Illinois, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, all states where people are largely grouped together in, in big numbers. And I'm wondering if that was taken into account or if anybody has thought about that possibility. Yeah, I mean, we actually have done uh, some work on correlates of freedom. And as we, we've already talked about some of the um, sort of the lack of findings, mostly on, on institutions. But um, and we do find that um, particularly on personal freedoms, uh, it's not necessarily uh, population density, but urbanization rates, the percentage of the population that lives in urban areas, is negatively associated with personal freedom. And we think that's probably causal, that there's something going on there. But the, the causality is not completely clear. Um, is it just because people are living close to each other that they want to control each other's lives? Or is it more that you know the areas that urbanized early tended to be maybe the more kind of Puritan um, areas of, of New England and so on? Um, the causality is not completely clear. We also do find some evidence that um, that there might be some undercurrent of um, perhaps racial animus still going on with um, restrictions on personal freedom. So states with a higher uh, percentage black tend to have stricter gun control, um, harsher um, 
um, penalties for marijuana, things like that. And we think, well, this might be, you know, um, what sociologists call the racial threat hypothesis, that in those states uh, with larger black populations, maybe the white population feels more anxious about crime or whatever, and so they then they take a more anti-libertarian, authoritarian line on that. Um, I, w- I would say looking at your data that the, on economic freedom, what I see is that you're getting more freedom where you have economic homogeneity and high levels of social trust and social connectedness, as Robert Putnam describes it. The West, <coughs> the West, North, Central, the Dakotas, and Minnesota. You know, I mean, North Dakota is a state where they don't have voter registration because it just doesn't occur to them that anyone would cheat. <laughs> and they know everybody, so it's not a problem. And then, in contrast, and perhaps responsive to what Jason was just saying, you get the least levels of economic, or you get lower in, in the east, south, central, I think, um, and and so forth, which is the racially polarized part of the country. You're looking at uh, Alabama, Mississippi, um, uh, you know, no, yeah, you're in, in Arkansas, Louisiana, so forth. Um, you're, you're, no, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi. Uh, I noticed that we got the highest degree of personal freedom in the West, and I have both the mountain and the Pacific coast. Do you wait? Are you just averaging the numbers by state with each state kind of the same, or you're not weighting them by population in which California has more people than the whole rest of the West put together? Yeah, so it's just a simple average. It's a simple average. So that would, uh, you know, it's, my, one's observation is that when you go out West, even to the major metropolitan areas where most people live, you know, Denver, Salt Lake City, Phoenix, you drive 50 or so miles outside that city, and you are in a place that is undeniably rural and largely uninhabited. Uh, the wilderness is right there. If you drive 50 miles in any direction from this meeting room at 1000 Massachusetts Avenue Northwest, you're in a pretty densely populated you know, area that's, that's clearly nothing like wilderness, and perhaps the frame of mind is more conducive to personal freedom where you have that uh, possibility of Hirschman-like exit to the wilderness ever before you. Well, that uh, raises a question I wanted to pose, too. Uh, an earlier version of this led to a uh, blog post at the Reason uh, uh, website, which was entitled, uh, Freedom Means Having Nothing Else to Do, all right, which I, is a good title. The, uh, and so I had my experience of this was last night where I was talking to my wife over dinner and I was saying, you know, we're pretty sick of D.C. And so uh, we're thinking about, well, maybe we'll move. And so I said, look, we're having this great uh, event tomorrow, nice publication I was reading today, and it turns out South Dakota is number two. What do you think, of, you know, about moving to South Dakota? And we had one of those 15-second conversations. Um, <laughs> Which end, as this one did, with my wife saying, I'm not going to fill in the blank. In this case, I'm not going to move to South Dakota. And I think it may be because she's afraid it, while it would be free, there wouldn't be anything else to do. So you, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, 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 you don't know this, but that's a great softball because we've been fielding that a lot. And I love to talk about this. In fact, I'll probably talk about it longer than I ought to. So I'll, be, I'll try to be uh, self-restricting, uh, uh, which is that basically... 
Um, I think this is uh, a bit of, of snobbery on the part of a lot of folks about what, A, counts as kind of valuable personal experiences. Uh, but B, even if we would privilege certain types of cultural activities, and to be honest, I, I tend to do that myself at times. Uh, I want to be able to go see an opera every so often. But the thing is, is that these states that are growing because they're free, because of this correlation between economic freedom and economic growth, these places are going to grow over time, and they're going to attract the kind of people that are highly productive, that are cosmopolitans, that are interested in these types of things. Now, we're not going to, you know, we're not, we might not get the Nick, Nick Gillespie's of the world to move to South Dakota, um, but we're going to get some people like Nick Gillespie to move to South Dakota, and they're going to start to demand things like better cultural amenities. And as we saw in the United States, and this is a point that Joel Kotkin has made, who's done great work on these types of issues, which is that these places are going to develop them because in the, in the 19th century, a lot of the places now that people want to go to to be hipsters, they weren't too hip. You know, America wasn't that hip in the context of the British Empire. Um, but eventually, these places developed these institutions as that economic dynamism of the 19th century created an amazing amount of wealth. And you know, Tyler Cowen at, uh, at George Mason and at the Mercatus Center has talked about the kind of explosion of cultural opportunities in places like the United States. Uh, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there are more symphonies in the United States now than there were 100 years ago. Um, these types of things are exploding. And, and I fully expect that places like uh, South Dakota, Places like Texas, where you have seen, you know, Houston has a lot more cultural amenities than it did a long time ago, and partly that's because they're richer, and part of the reason they're richer is because they're freer, uh, and so they will get these things. And you know, I'll, I'll 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 give a quotation, and I might be quoting it a little bit out of context, but I think it's wonderful. He says, um, "Who's to say Oklahoma City can't be Oz?" Um, now, I'm not sure about Oklahoma City, uh, but uh, certainly lots of places uh, in, quote, unquote, flyover country might be the kind of places that are attractive. And we've actually seen that in some of these places that have attracted tourists. I mean, who would have thought 100 years ago that you'd want to go to uh, Las Vegas, of all places, in the middle of the desert, a place founded by a, a particular religious uh, uh, community that isn't prone to desiring uh, lots of the things that you can get in Las Vegas today? Um, and so you can see that kind of attraction that develops from economic growth. Um, and so I, I would say be patient, my friend. I'll let yeah, him know. Remember, most people, you know, most people don't. I, I like to go to symphony. The opera is not for me. But symph <laughs> I like to go to symphonies and museums. I don't do that a whole lot, even though I live in Washington, which has wonderful facilities. And I kind of kick myself for that. Most people get their entertainment through... Uh, you know, internet, cable TV, lots of ways, which is, is available in Lincoln County, South Dakota, one of the 10 fastest growing counties in the United States over the last decade, as it is here in the District of Columbia. And I think that uh, William's comment is just absolutely on target. There is a proliferation of, uh, of entertainment, of different kinds of self-started cultures and stuff out there. Um, that we simply don't appreciate, perhaps, from our metropolitan perch. Uh, but there are plenty of things uh, to do to entertain yourself, to stimulate. Oh, and by the way, you don't even have to worry about bookstores anymore because you can buy books online, any, you know, and they're delivered within a day or two. And, and I'd add one, one more thing about that. Is that. You know, imagine the average middle-class family of four or five in, in New York. 
And let's say, you know, you're living outside of Manhattan, maybe because you can't afford to live in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, how often are you going to go to the Met when the state is taking such a huge cut of your earned income? I mean, you're not going to be able to enjoy these things as much. Uh, you know, so, you know, when I lived in Indianapolis uh, for my job, one time I had to go to Denver to see an opera with Denise Graves singing the opening of this beautiful opera house. Now, I'm sure it was subsidized by the state. But nonetheless, the fact is, is that, you know, you can, you know, it, uh, my guess is I probably saw more opera that year traveling than some people maybe see that live in New York just because it's expensive, it's crowded, the, you know, all these things that are problematic about these, about these places. It, it, if I, you know, if you had millions and millions of dollars, living in Manhattan, I'm sure is wonderful because you, you know, the the bite into your lifestyle is is less uh, from the state. Um, but if you want to, you know, this is why everybody's moving to Houston, and I have some friends that are real partisans of Houston, and I'm a partisan of Austin, so there's a little bit of tension there. But, you know, they always talk about how you can just do so much in Houston, and your dollar goes so far, uh, and it's a great place to be a middle class family man. And there's a lot to be said for that. And, and let me tell you, I, mean, I grew up in the Northeast. I love Boston, New York, and places like that. Um, but, you know, there's a lot to be said for quote-unquote flyover country. It really is. You, can, you know, you just, you can feel it. And, and I know our study gives a scientific, uh, you know, veneer to that feeling. But you can really feel it, I think. I mean, if you can be in New Hampshire in open carry, for example, uh, <laughs> if you can be, you know, in a lot of these parts of the country and not feel that heavy tax bite every year. You know, I, I don't have to pay a, a sales, I mean, I don't have to pay an income tax, for example. And heck, in New Hampshire, you don't have an income tax or a sales tax. It's wonderful. Where do airline pilots live? <laughs> right. <laughs> a lot of them live in New Hampshire, Texas, Florida. Hmm. I just realized I made my wife the heavy in all this, so maybe we'll hope she doesn't watch this on, on the Internet. Uh, the lady in, right in the front there. Yes. Robin Landis no affiliation. I'm just wondering whether your data identifies um, a change in the mean age of states and whether age correlates to freedom. We haven't looked at that at all, honestly, but that would be interesting. Um, my guess is that, um, that states that are attracting people tend to have lower median ages, but I'm not positive about that. I think there's also a correlation with immigration. I mean, you know, California has a low median age right now. But the Hispanic median age is very low, and the non-Hispanic whites is very high. So, um, and I think overall, there's not a huge difference in the age compositions of the states. I mean, let's say Florida or Pennsylvania has got an over 65 population of about, what, 19, 20 percent, and the low state is about 12 percent. So that's not like the difference between Mississippi that's 37% black and New Hampshire that's 1% black, for, to take one of many possible examples. Unfortunately, we've come to the last question. If we have one more person, yes, no? Uh, person here in purple. I, this is my day of identifying people by clothing. The color that purple. That's work. Took me ten years. To um, I noticed in your like policy recommendations area, you noted the current like the 2011 um, partisanship of the governor or the legislature, and your data actually comes from like 2009. And I know in Michigan we re we have a Republican governor, and now we have a Republican senator and everything. Um, and I was just wondering if you found in your data set that um, the partisanship of the government had any effect on the 
freedoms that they were there at that time because I know in Michigan we've actually taken a lot of your um, policy recommendations. We got rid of our business tax and all that stuff. So a lot of things have changed because we have a Republican um, state government. And so I think a, that might have a big effect on like the freedom rankings of the states. Yeah, my, my guess is that that's true. We, ha we have not looked at uh, the partisanship of the legislature and the governor as um, factors affecting freedom. Um, we have found that uh, we've looked at citizen ideology, those, those charts with left, right. We also, one other aspect of citizen ideology we've, we've looked at, it's not in the study, but something um, fairly recent, it's actually been blogged on this blog, uh, Peleus at the Fund for American Studies uh, uh, sponsors. Um, we found that states with more... Um, libertarians as a percentage of the population of higher personal freedom. Uh, so, yeah, um, uh, citizen opinion has an, has an effect, whether the partisanship of the legislature and governor also have an effect independently of that, we haven't investigated yet, but I suspect you're right that they do. You know, and we have a couple of cases where we talk about it in the study. In, in New Hampshire, for example, uh, with the Democrats uh, in charge, uh, personal freedom actually went up uh, since the last index, I think. Uh, and uh, economic freedom went down a little bit. And uh, from, from things I've heard from the state of New Hampshire since the Republicans came back in power in the legislature is that uh, uh, the economic side will be now turning around, or so I hear. Yeah. I mean, New Hampshire, historically, New Hampshire is an interesting example because if we go back to the 1960s, only about half the states had income taxes, and we were told by many well-intentioned people that that was the way of progress towards the future and get an income tax and a flow of revenue for the transportation, and wonderful universities and everything. Um, New Hampshire resisted that tide, and, you know, partly I would, you know, I give credit to its colonial origins, which I think played some role partly just because it attracted people from a high-tax state, Massachusetts, who were a block in favor of continuing their low-tax status, but also because of the role of William Loeb and the Manchester Union leader, which was critical in stopping that. And um, interestingly, the last state to adopt a state income tax is Connecticut in 1991. It's 20 years ago. And in Washington state, there was a referendum sponsored by Bill Gates uh, Sr., um, to impose an income tax on all those evil people in the state with tax uh, with incomes over five hundred thousand dollars or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever, it was defeated sixty four to thirty six. The record will show that there are not sixty four percent of the Washington state voters with incomes over five hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or whatever else, but. The opponents made a good point that uh, the law would require you to start reporting your income to Washington State, and then it would be really kind of easy for the legislators to decide that the evil rich actually started kind of lower down on the income ladder, down to about $11,000 or something. So, uh, so it was defeated. But um, I think the interesting thing, will we see a state repeal its income tax? go that far. I don't know. There are about 10 states now, 9 or 10 states that don't have one. And oh. they've all, just as when you take the states that have had right-to-work laws, they've done better than the non-right-to-work law states in economic growth, in population growth, demographic growth, whether you're looking at the last 10 years or the last 40 years. And the same is true of the no-income tax states. Yeah, before we end, uh, you know, I, I want to especially thank uh, Michael for, for agreeing to come and do this for us. I mean, he just has an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, the states that I'm just awed by. And, uh, you know, he, he wrote something about the first edition. Uh, I was in Afghanistan at the time when I saw it, and, 
and you know, so when David asked, who, who do you want to comment uh, on your on your uh, your paper, and I and you know, he was the first name that came to mind. So, uh, let's give him a round of applause for a great uh, commentary. And so we'll end on that note. Uh, remember, the publication is Freedom in the 50 States. If you're out there in Internet land, you can go to the Mercatus Center at George Mason and get yourself a copy of it. You can, we have copies outside also. I, on behalf of the Cato Institute, would like to thank Will Ruger, Jason Sorens, and Michael Barone for appearing today. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Please join us upstairs for a reception. <laughs>